As I get older and games move forward, it becomes harder for me to place myself in the past. For all of the conveniences offered in the current state of the industry, there are also an abundance of... inconveniences. Long updates and download times, massive game sizes that can barely fit on a console's basic storage, anticipated games releasing in an unfinished state, expensive DLC packs and season passes for things that could have been included in the base game, and companies losing a lot of player respect after getting a taste of success. A lot of these things have become commonplace for the past decade, and they've only become more problematic with time. Which is why starting up Metroid Dread on launch day was such a magical experience. I took the game home, put it in the Switch, and within moments, I was going through the intro sequence. No day one patches, no incessant company logos, no promise of DLC that was being held over, just an excellent, challenging, immersive, and infinitely replayable Metroid game. A game that was released in such a beautiful state and accounted for extravagant sequence breaks. Something that you could get invested in and remember for a long time. No strings attached. I haven't had an experience this pure with a brand new game in a very long time. The game took me back to a time when there were no updates or download times. When a game was done, that was it. You couldn't update it or patch it after the fact. It had to be bug-free on release, otherwise those bugs would become part of a game's legacy. On top of that, the entire game had to fit on a disc. No installation, no copying to the hard drive, you just pop the game in and play. I suppose I just crave the simplicity of an era lost to time. In my eyes, the last era in which these simple conveniences were commonplace was the sixth generation of consoles. This was the era in which my love for this medium of entertainment was born. And it's all thanks to the Nintendo GameCube. This is the story of a little lunchbox that went a long way. The GameCube was all about letting experiences come first. In doing so, the system left behind an astonishing library of fantastic games. However, it faced many hardships before it finally bit the dust. In this video, I'll be discussing the games that set the system apart from its competitors, its fight for relevance in the industry, what Nintendo learned from the system, and its legacy. I'm Liam Triforce, and in honor of the console's 20th anniversary, this is a Nintendo GameCube retrospective. Although the Nintendo 64 has enjoyed acclaim in the years since its release, some of the decisions Nintendo made with the console would result in them gradually losing third-party support and close partnerships with other studios. The most commonly cited issue was its use of cartridges. The system's competitors, the Sony PlayStation and Sega Saturn, both used CD-ROMs for delivering games. These CDs held a maximum of 650 megabytes, whereas Nintendo 64 cartridges could only hold 64 megabytes. This limited what developers could do in many ways. Although they featured very fast or otherwise non-existent load times, developers were forced to work around the storage limitations by decreasing texture and sound quality, foregoing full motion video in most cases, and reducing the overall amount of content they included if they wanted to avoid compressing assets. Usually, they'd have to do that anyway, because the texture cache was only 4 kilobytes in size. All of the storage limitations made full-scale RPGs like Final Fantasy VII impractical without major compromises. On top of that, cartridges were more expensive to produce than CDs. With all of this in mind, many major developers like Squaresoft, Capcom, Konami, Namco, and even Argonaut Software of Star Fox fame shifted their resources to the PlayStation. 
The competition was fierce, and while the Nintendo 64 was still a very technically impressive system for its time, it wasn't very easy to develop for unless you solely devoted your focus to understanding its architecture. Near the end of the system's life, Chief of Hardware Development at Nintendo, Genyo Takeda, looked back on the system's programming challenges with regret. However, when developers had this opportunity to work directly and solely with the Nintendo 64 hardware, the games would speak for themselves. These games were the reason people remembered the system with great fondness. They don't remember the Nintendo 64 for its technical shortcomings, they remember the experiences. The hours spent racing in Mario Kart 64, the first time they beat Ganon in Ocarina of Time, or the countless slap battles they had in Goldeneye. They remember the core experiences they had with the games on Nintendo 64, and I believe this remains true for the GameCube era. Now, I'm going to talk about the games that made the GameCube the incredible system that it was. Games that realized the fullest potential of the system's hardware, controller, peripherals, or niche audience to deliver experiences that you couldn't get anywhere else. But no matter what you decide to play on the GameCube, the console is unified by its main menu. You'd probably think that a little floating cube sitting in an empty black void would accompany some unsettling music, but the GameCube interprets this as a blank slate. An opportunity to sit still and reflect, change some settings, or maybe look at the many icons for the save files on your memory cards. Above all else, it asks a simple question. What do you want to play? Just hearing a few notes from its ambient music reminds me of how many memories I have with the GameCube. It is the purest, most evocative form of nostalgia I have, as that minimalistic, ambient bell pad piece connects me to every GameCube game I ever played as a kid. It transports me to a simpler time, and I think everyone needs that sometimes. Anyway, enough dawdling. Let's play some games. On launch day, what demonstrated the system's capabilities out of the box? In terms of graphics, both Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2 and Luigi's Mansion were excellent technical showcases for what the GameCube could do, the former being developed by Factor 5. This studio became Nintendo's technology partner through their understanding of the Nintendo 64's architecture, and the Rogue Squadron games live on as highly regarded games in the GameCube's library. Luigi's Mansion, however, also demonstrated how amazing the GameCube's controller is, and the kind of charm that would become a staple of the system. In Luigi's Mansion, you need to snap the control stick in the opposite direction that your ghost is trying to scurry. Thanks to the control stick's octagonal notches, you can feel the accuracy of digital inputs with the freedom of analog control. You can tilt in the eight directions flawlessly, while also making minute adjustments that aren't possible on digital d-pads. This works wonders in maximizing your profits in Luigi's Mansion and replaying the game over and over again for a better rank. And for a launch game, replayability is a great thing. Luigi's Mansion also had oodles of personality of its own, unlike any other game I've played thanks to its ghosts, character writing, and soundtrack. Not even its sequels could accurately replicate its charm, instead forging their own paths. So, we're already off to a great start, but my favorite exclusive launch title was a little game called Super Monkey Ball. This game combined feats of performance, tech, and controller utilization into a unique and extraordinarily fun take on Marble Madness. Running at 60 frames per second, optimized for high speeds, and sporting simplistic but appealing textures and reflections, the game was great at showcasing the GameCube's capabilities. It may have just been a port of an arcade game, but it feels right at home on the GameCube. And not just because of what I've mentioned, it's also very much thanks to the controller. As you're tilting the stage and not the monkey, 
Accuracy is key to clearing levels as you make sharp adjustments to your monkey's trajectory. This accuracy can enable you to pull off some tricky skips and incredible feats of human ingenuity. See, Super Monkey Ball isn't just about finding solutions to the puzzle mazes. It is designed for replayability thanks to its relentlessly challenging and abstract level design that you can find exploits in in faster ways to cross the goal. On top of the main game, you also have the party games, which some people spent all of their time on. Both of these modes could be played with up to four players, making for hours of fun either alone or with a group. The game even received a sequel a year later, which fully realized the potential of these abstract level designs. So many shapes and tests of accuracy and moments that barely resemble what the game was inspired by. Super Monkey Ball was a wholly unique experience, and you could spend countless hours on it for many different reasons. Super Monkey Ball's replayability stemmed from its difficulty and the sheer depth in its level design and controls. Trying to get better times in challenge mode, and unlocking those extra levels by not dying or using a continue. Pair that with an immensely enjoyable collection of party games, and you have a pair of games that you could play for, well, 20 years. And for a game like that to launch with the console? Yeah, that's a good sign. When it comes to third-party support, the most notable launch title to me was an uncompromised port of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3. Simply having Rogue Squadron 2, Luigi's Mansion, Monkey Ball, and Tony Hawk is an absolute blessing because pretty much all of them have benefits to being replayed endlessly. Sometimes, less is more. Even if you weren't keen on buying the system at launch, it wouldn't take long before an earth-shattering game would come to the GameCube. About a month after launch, Nintendo released Super Smash Bros. Melee, a game that would transcend the system and become one of the most popular competitive fighting games of all time. By complete accident. Director Masahiro Sakurai never intended for the game to have a competitive scene, and worried about the gap widening between casual and competitive players. But it is impossible to disregard the amount of tech that players have discovered in the years since. Players have transformed the game into one of the most invigorating and intense fighting games to watch, period. There are 134 entries in the Techniques category on the Smash Wiki for Melee alone. The game has a considerable amount of hidden depth that the developers never even considered, but the end result is a beautiful competitive scene. Setting up combos and kill confirms has never been as fluent and satisfying. The controller also lent itself well to the gameplay of Melee, and there's a good reason it remains a popular choice of controller to this very day in subsequent Smash games. But even if you don't care about the competitive side of Melee, you'll find a lot to enjoy in it. There's far more content to delve into than Smash 64 ever had, and unlocking characters always comes as a welcome surprise. Surviving 100-man Melee for the first time only to discover Falco, or leaving the GameCube on overnight by accident and coming back to end up fighting Mewtwo, yeah, those are experiences that you don't forget. I always loved how the unlockable stages and characters are strewn across the different modes. It encouraged players to seek out all of the content the game had to offer, and I had a great time doing it. Melee is still one of the sharpest Smash games mechanically, and while not everyone will have an urge to revisit it today, it will always hold a special place in my heart. Still haven't unlocked Sonic, though. I have a feeling that kid was lying to me in second grade. There was one thing I didn't like about Melee, though. Its absolutely monumental impact and legacy almost entirely overshadowed another Nintendo game that released on the same day. Pikmin. This was a real-time strategy game that anyone could enjoy, speaking as someone that doesn't really enjoy real-time strategy games. You had 30 days to repair your ship and get home, which meant carefully allocating your time towards growing your Pikmin army, performing tasks, finding ship parts, and much more. It is delicately designed to ease you into such a daunting task, and while it tends to induce anxiety in new players, it is one hell of a game. 
If the time limit isn't your thing, then perhaps you'd like to try out its sequel from 2004. With that game, you can explore caves as much as you like to complete the Piclopedia, which can be an addicting cycle as your Pikmin counts continue to rise. Or plummet, depending on the challenges you encounter. They both handle tension differently, and they offer different things to different people. But I think they still stand tall in their own right. As far as I'm concerned, the GameCube had an excellent lineup in its first two months, and that lineup would continue to expand. Let's rewind back to Super Monkey Ball for a second. The game was a precedent at the time, as it was the first game Sega published for a Nintendo console. Sega making games on a Nintendo platform was already a mind-blowing concept back then, but then they decided to start making Sonic games for the system. And Sonic thrived on the GameCube. This all began with Sonic Adventure 2 Battle which featured more detailed textures and geometry than the Dreamcast original, and fleshed out its Chow Garden with quality of life features and an in-depth replacement for taking your Chow with you on the Dreamcast VMU. The Tiny Chow Garden. By linking the game with a Game Boy Advance, you could copy your Chow's data and take it with you on the go, or transfer them to the Chow Garden in Sonic Advance. Since the Chow raising in Adventure 2 was already a step up from the original, with Chow evolutions and separate gardens for each type of Chow, I honestly spent more time replaying my favorite levels in Raising Chow than I did on any other aspect of the game. I even had a friend of mine bring over his memory card when I was a kid, and I was able to check out his Chow garden, trade with him, and even battle. Yeah, I really miss everything about this. When it comes to Sonic, his games were not in short supply. A port of the original Sonic Adventure came out as well, in addition to versions of the multi-platform games Sonic Heroes, Shadow the Hedgehog, and Sonic Riders. These games were all over the place in terms of quality, of course, but if you wanted to play a classic Sonic game instead, Sega had you covered. The Sonic Mega and Gems collections are still some of the best examples of how you handle a compilation disc. Sonic Mega Collection offered the original trilogy, and Knuckles, Sonic 3D Blast, Spinball, Mean Bean Machine, Rystar, Comic Zone, and Flicky, all for $20 at the time of its release. Not only was it affordable, it offered great emulation and a ton of bonus content alongside the games you were likely to buy the collection for. Gems Collection featured rarer games in the series, notably Sonic CD, Sonic R, and Sonic the Fighters, the latter of which was an arcade game, along with other goodies like Game Gear games, the Vector Man games, and save states. Where these compilations really succeed, though, is in their presentation. Sonic Mega Collection goes for a decidedly retro design. The logo screens have you flying through hyperspace as if you're traveling back in time, and the music is reflective and nostalgic. Listening to this while flipping through old, goofy Sonic comics or reading the game manuals adds to that feeling of stepping back in time. Regardless of whether or not you've played Sonic before, this collection was worth diving into. It was the perfect entry point, as it preserved a lot of Sonic's history on a $20 disc. Sonic Gems Collection went for a modern and sleek look, and its electronic music and killer remixes made for perfect accompaniment. Both collections are evocative of a similar yearning for the past, and even though these discs were my introduction to the world of Sonic, the effect their overall presentation had on me cannot be understated. They were comforting then, and they are immensely nostalgic today. It's always nice to see developers go the extra mile and create experiences out of simple compilations like this, and these collections are the gold standard for that. 
In a time where access to older games no longer necessitates dedicated compilation discs, or where companies feel the need to just bundle games together and call it a day, I find myself yearning for something that could come close to matching those Sonic collections. Sega nailed it back then. Sega really seemed to favor the GameCube in general, and Nintendo took notice. After Amusement Vision did such a fantastic job with Super Monkey Ball, they ended up repurposing that high-speed game engine to create a new entry in an old favorite series. F-Zero GX is about as good as arcade racers get. It took everything that made F-Zero X on Nintendo 64 so exhilarating and cranked things up to 11 with more detailed and memorable tracks, tighter gameplay, and like most Sega games, a challenging main game that required considerable practice and repeat attempts to become the greatest racer around. Its ridiculous tone in the story mode perfectly matched the ludicrous races that you compete in, and Captain Falcon's theme is basically hard rock gospel. I'm going to reserve my extended thoughts on this game for now because it might be the subject of a full-blown retrospective in the future. F-Zero GX was an unforgettable experience, and the levels of high-skill speed-induced dopamine it created have yet to be matched. It's a crying shame that this was the last F-Zero game released on a home console, but it's also pretty hard to believe that anything could top it. Artist Takaya Imamura, who created Captain Falcon, said in 2003 that it was hard to see if they could take the series any further than GX. There may have been attempts to do such a thing behind closed doors, but the series has remained dormant since the 2000s. Maybe one day, we'll see the Blue Falcon and the Black Bull face off once again. Alongside F-Zero GX, Nintendo and Sega created an arcade counterpart, aptly named F-Zero AX. This game ran on a board known as the Triforce, the name coming from the trio of developers that worked on it, Nintendo, Sega, and Namco. Being based on the GameCube's architecture, it also accepted GameCube memory cards, which you could use to import exclusive content to GX. This board would also be used to create Mario Kart Arcade GP, which let you play as Pac-Man. It was awesome seeing these arcade machines in the wild. F-Zero AX in particular also bridges nicely into a philosophy that Nintendo still holds dear finding new ways for players to experience games. The GameCube was arguably Nintendo's last traditional games console of any kind. The Wii focused on motion controls, the DS had its dual screens and touch-based gameplay, the Wii U had asymmetrical multiplayer, and the Switch is an amalgamation of these ideas rolled into one device that you can play anywhere. But for as long as they've been around, Nintendo has always been keen on experimenting with new ways to experience games. In the GameCube days, the most infamous example of this experimentation was the Game Boy Advance Link Cable. This created an asymmetrical gameplay experience that wouldn't be revisited until the Wii U. Take for example Pac-Man Versus. Three players control the ghosts on the TV screen and can only see a portion of the maze at a time. Meanwhile, the player controlling Pac-Man uses the Game Boy Advance and can see the entire maze like the normal arcade game. The ghosts have to communicate to track down Pac-Man before he can complete the maze. It's honestly a lot of fun even today, but it is only a sampling of what was possible with the Link Cable. A much more fleshed out demonstration exists in the form of Zelda Four Swords Adventures. 
Much like its predecessor, this game had players progressing linearly through Zelda-esque gauntlets of puzzles and combat challenges, with items tying into the game's cooperative nature. However, unlike the original Four Swords, Adventure's dungeons and worlds are not randomized, primarily because the designers created elaborate puzzles and layouts involving the GBA connectivity. Some portions of the level can only be seen on the GBA screen, and when you involve four players at a time, this can lead to some layered and complex problem-solving contingent on your communication and memorization as a team. It is an absolutely wonderful multiplayer experience, and it is a testament to Nintendo's philosophy on finding new ways to experience this medium, and quite possibly the catalyst for the endless experimentation we see today. For further experimentation on the GameCube, look no further than Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. This is a platformer that you play by clapping and banging your grubby little hands on a pair of bongos. You know how Rayman Legends has a level in which you clear hazards by playing to the beat of Black Betty by Ram Jam? That's the closest thing I can compare the entirety of Jungle Beat to. And for that feat alone, Jungle Beat is definitely worth your time. I had so much fun recording this game during the summer that I actually went back to it a second time just for this video. This game is genuinely astonishing. There were a handful of other games that featured these peripherals, including notable ones like Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles and Donkey Konga, but I just wanted to give you an overview of the peripherals themselves. The truth is, there were plenty of peripherals for the GameCube, as is the case with any game's console, but these two were unique innovations in designing games, and they remain difficult experiences to emulate nowadays. Now, let's step back for a second. F-Zero GX managed to be the definitive F-Zero game, what other series received definitive games on the GameCube? Well, when talking definitive, I could never forget Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door. It is a marginal step beyond the original game in character writing, world design, problem solving, music, mechanical variety, emotional resonance, and fun. Simply put, it is one of the best RPGs ever made, and one of the few RPGs to effectively innovate on turn-based combat by making you an active participant in its battles. This was something that the original Paper Mario did very well, but Thousand Year Door significantly improved on its gameplay in every way, in combination with everything else it did right. Now, along with being definitive, another thing these games reveal about the GameCube itself is the platform's devotion to innovation. Sure, through its peripherals you can see this philosophy, but it also shines through in game design. A rhythm platformer that is controlled with a pair of bongos, a puzzle platformer that can be so much bigger and bolder than it appears, an asymmetrical multiplayer Zelda game that has you communicating your perspectives on both screens to other players, a Resident Evil game in which you suck up ghosts optimally and find secrets for a higher score on each playthrough? These are the experiences that set the GameCube apart from its competitors. Take for example Mario Kart Double Dash. It's my favorite game in the series thanks to its two-rider motif, and the cooperative and competitive possibilities that it invites. Whether I was in control of both of my riders at once and performing item management and optimal drifting, or I was tackling each track with a friend and communicating as we cleared each lap, Double Dash was an excellent take on the quintessential kart racer. It may have been eclipsed by Mario Kart Wii and Mario Kart 8 Deluxe in terms of content and features, but its core gameplay has yet to be matched. Even more abstract is Kirby Air Ride. It features a simplistic control scheme and a unique take on racing in general, but Hidden Within is one of the most fun party game modes in any video game ever. City Trial. Essentially, you have a set amount of time to upgrade your character and air ride machine by collecting items for each stat. After all is said and done, you compete in a race minigame or boss battle. 
In addition, you also have to watch out for events that can drastically affect how you go about upgrading, and you can go out of your way to search for the three pieces of the Dragoon or Hydra to create a legendary air rod machine, and mop the floor with your opponents. All of this is happening simultaneously against the other players as they attempt to sabotage you or blow you up, and all within a sprawling city with detailed sections, shortcuts, secrets, and more. As far as I'm concerned, City Trial is all Kirby Air Ride needed to be in order to be successful, because it's all anyone ever talks about from this game. Its uniqueness serves as a further testament to how GameCube game developers thought outside of the box to solidify the console's identity. So many of the GameCube's best games are unique experiences that remain unparalleled by anything else in the history of the medium. And although they are excellent games, I'm not talking about what they accomplish in overall quality. What stands out to me are the ideas they carry out. Rather than trying to maintain the status quo of their genres or strive for excellence over the established rule sets of a genre, they all strive to be distinctive takes on these genres. That's not to say the other consoles didn't have games like that. Halo Combat Evolved made incredible strides in designing a first-person shooter, while Kingdom Hearts redefined the possibilities of an action RPG. But the GameCube was consistent in this philosophy of thinking outside of the box, and there are still so many games I haven't mentioned. Eternal Darkness Sanity's Requiem, for example, is a must-play. It is a fresh take on psychological horror that deliberately messes with the player in their darkest moments with tricks that I won't dare spoil. You may or may not enjoy Billy Hatcher and the Giant Egg, but its concept of an egg-rolling platformer is unmistakably original. If you wanted a further showcase for the brilliance of the GameCube's controller, Soul Calibur 2 was a perfect fit for the control stick's notches. And you can't forget Mario Party. Even though the franchise was annualized on the GameCube, its gameplay remains unmatched by its imitators, and I find Mario Party 6 to be the sharpest entry in the series. The console is also home to hidden gems that don't compromise on the system's reputation for individuality, like Wario World and Geist. Okay, maybe they're not gems, but they are pretty distinct games. I have over a hundred GameCube games on my shelf, so picking out the ones I wanted to spend time on was excruciatingly difficult, and I still haven't talked about all of my picks yet. The point I'm trying to make with these games I've discussed is that the system had a strong lineup of games with distinguished characteristics. These characteristics took them a step beyond the genres that defined them, and instead bent genre rules to their will, or otherwise went beyond any expectations held by players. A fighting party game that based its competitive scene on oversights and hidden advanced techniques? A real-time strategy game that directly involves you in the action and puzzle solving on a time limit? This is why the GameCube had such a strong lineup. And it's a shame that this commitment to delivering experiences ended up being detrimental to the system's short-term relevance. While the GameCube was a pretty powerful system and it was much easier for developers to take advantage of than the N64, it had its hiccups. The decision to use mini-DVDs over full-size DVDs forced developers to release games on multiple discs. They'd have to compress data and video files or remove content entirely, much like the N64. But perhaps the biggest hit to third-party developers was its lack of a proper online infrastructure. The PlayStation 2, and especially the Xbox, took full advantage of the possibilities of online multiplayer. However, Nintendo saw no reason to pursue it. Aside from Phantasy Star Online and the Japan-exclusive game Homeland, the GameCube really only made use of LAN multiplayer, meaning multiple systems could connect to one another on the same network. And even then, only three games utilized it, and you'd need to buy separate peripherals in order to connect systems. 
Phantasy Star Online was a very highly regarded game and is still played to this very day on private servers. So, why not have more online games? Well, Nintendo's reasoning included concerns over quality control, doubts over subscription fees, and wanting kids and families to feel safe and secure with their GameCube at home. This alienated many developers that wanted to deliver online experiences across every system, as they'd either have to spend money on an online mode for a console that had no online strategy in place, or release the game without online features and hope that people buy it. The original Battlefield 1942 was proposed to Nintendo as a GameCube exclusive, but you can imagine how well that went over. These problems, combined with the console's lunchboxy appearance and Nintendo's traditional focus on family-friendly entertainment, drove many third-party developers away from the system. Even Nintendo's strongest and most confident releases were met with skepticism. Super Mario Sunshine, I love this game. Flood and Yoshi both feel like perfect and organic extensions of Mario's abilities, and each mission had defined characteristics that could occasionally revamp how you explore a level. However, not everyone was keen on the game's structure, which focused on clearing Episode 7 in every world and eliminated the freedom established in Mario 64. And getting 120 shines meant collecting 240 blue coins. It's a very complicated situation, and I'd love to make a full-length video on the game someday. A game I have made a video on is The Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. It's my favorite game, but I'm sure you know all about that by now. Its new art style was deliberate and a massive commitment, and it had an effect on the game's design, mechanics, and especially its narrative. It aimed to convey an alternative perspective to growing up, unlike Ocarina of Time. And not many people were able to see through its whimsical art style at the time. Most of its pre-order sales came from people looking to get the Ocarina of Time Master Quest disc for their GameCube, which completely validates the point Wind Waker was trying to make. Its reputation improved over time, and the game's art direction is now seen as groundbreaking and one of the best examples of cell shading in a video game. I personally believe it paved the way for many games that attempted a similar style, but at the time, it didn't convince people. With some of Nintendo's biggest and most recognizable franchises not attracting as wide of an audience as previously done with the N64, aside from Smash Bros. and Mario Kart, the GameCube, as it stood in the 2000s, offered an impeccable lineup of games to a rather niche market. Nintendo needed a game that would transcend its own target audience. It needed to fit into a recognizable and profitable genre, but also follow the GameCube's reputation of bending genre rules. The franchise that was chosen to accomplish such a monumental task was Metroid. Metroid Prime was met with skepticism when it was revealed that it was going to be a first-person shooter, but the core of Metroid was very much intact when it first released, sweeping awards in 2002 and becoming a legendary game in Nintendo's repertoire. Retro Studios perfectly transitioned the gameplay of Metroid into 3D, and the first-person perspective meant exploring this new access for depth in puzzle design, combat, and atmosphere with unparalleled immersion. Metroid Prime eventually became a trilogy of games, and I've made a video on how much I love them. Still one of my favorite videos to date, along with Wind Waker. Metroid Prime transcended both Nintendo's traditional audience and refused to conform to FPS traditions, making it a killer app for the GameCube. But it wouldn't be enough to save the system from its inevitable decline. While I believe the console's strong lineup of games solidified its reputation today, its sole focus on games, as well as its target audience, ended up isolating the company back then in an ever-growing industry. The latter was an inevitability, while the former was the result of their vision for the console. 
for better or worse. To this day, Nintendo remains apprehensive about changing the way they do things. I won't delve deeply into this topic because, well, I have once before on my now-defunct Twitter page, and there's no need to beat a dead horse. It also generally depresses me to dwell on their stubborn nature, so I won't bother. The only thing that has truly stayed the same is the company's commitment to delivering fantastic experiences. And that's what keeps me and many others crawling back. I don't agree with everything that Nintendo does, but they certainly haven't forgotten how to make great games. Also, that's not to say third-party support didn't exist on the GameCube. Along with Sega's adamant support for the system, many highly acclaimed multi-platform games hit the system, and I had fond memories experiencing them first on the GameCube. They may not be relevant to the discussion of what set the system apart from its competition, but just because it didn't have Grand Theft Auto or Final Fantasy doesn't mean it didn't have any support from the sidelines. The question is, did that support last? And the answer is no. By 2005, both first and third party support for the GameCube dwindled, with 2006 releases slowing to a crawl. During this time, the most you'd get would be a swath of licensed games for kids, or an oddball first party game like Geist or Mario Superstar Baseball. Great games did release during the twilight of the system's life, but they were few and far between and occasionally very odd or niche, which was welcome in the grand scheme of things, but it wasn't great for creating broad appeal at the time. Another huge hit to the system's library was the loss of developer Rare, and it was entirely Nintendo's fault that they had to say goodbye to them. Rare contributed to the Nintendo 64's library in a major way, creating innovative first-person shooters, 3D platformers, and even a kart racer that unquestionably inspired Crash Team Racing. Their impact on the industry should not be overlooked. While they were making these games, Nintendo never thought to acquire the company, instead settling for the 49% stake they owned. With development costs rising and Nintendo refusing to offer more capital or purchase the remaining stake, Rare was eventually bought out by Microsoft for $375 million. Adjusted for inflation, that's over $500 million. Nintendo let Rare slip through their fingers. To be fair, their last game with Nintendo was Star Fox Adventures, which wasn't one of their finest works, and after being acquired by Microsoft, they really haven't been the same. I mean, I guess I liked Viva Pinata? I think? But perhaps this was a gradual change that was already in motion before the company was acquired. Regardless of whether or not Nintendo was gonna let them get away, maybe this decline was inevitable. But no matter where you stand on the issue, it's a fact that we never got to play a proper Banjo 3 or Donkey Kong Racing, and that still stings after all these years. The Rare I once knew belonged with Nintendo, but it's clear that they weren't going to be the same company forever, so maybe their departure was for the best. With all of this at hand, things were looking grim as the system was set to face obsolescence, and Nintendo had one last trick up their sleeve in an effort to reclaim support they collaborated with a developer that was once one of their closest partners. Introducing the Capcom 5. This was a lineup of GameCube games that were touted as exclusives, and they all aimed to fit right in with the system's focus on originality and quality. The first of these was PN03, which certainly was unique, but it didn't strike a chord with everyone due to its controls and repetition. The second game was much better though. It was an excellent side-scrolling beat-em-up called Beautiful Joe, a game that oozes style and charm to this day in all aspects. This is where things started to go south, however. The third game, Dead Phoenix, was never released, and it was around this time that the exclusivity fell through. Beautiful Joe received a port to PlayStation 2, as did the fourth game, Killer7. 
The fifth game was supposed to remain exclusive, but it has since become one of the most ported video games ever. However, that fifth game was for a limited time a big reason to purchase a GameCube. It swept Game of the Year awards in 2005, and is personally one of my favorite games of all time. While Resident Evil had a phenomenal presence on the GameCube with an excellent remake of the original game, as well as ports of 2, 3, and Code Veronica, and the original prequel game Zero, the one that had the biggest impact was Resident Evil 4. Seeing as most of us have played this game by now, I'm not going to sing its praises over again. Simply put, it forever revolutionized third-person shooters without compromising on the tense gameplay of Resident Evil. By emphasizing accuracy in an anxious setting, it made survival contingent on how well you can aim, strategize, and organize. Its effects can still be felt in the genres it influenced, the games it inspired, and even future Resident Evil games. In summary, the Capcom 5's games were not all failures. God no. But the strategy itself unfortunately flopped. The system's market share and target audience wasn't broad enough for the games to make bank, especially when you consider the irreverent or mature themes they dealt with. This resulted in the exclusivity deal fading into the background, with Nintendo and Capcom's relationship remaining strained for many years. It was a final nail in the GameCube's coffin, despite everything it had accomplished over the course of its life. Nintendo eventually abandoned ship and released the Wii in 2006, with the GameCube being discontinued the following year, and leaving Madden NFL 08 as the last game released for it. Yeah, what a swan song. And that, my friends, is the tragic story of the GameCube. But while its life ended there, its legacy lived on. The Wii was the beginning of Nintendo's Blue Ocean strategy, in which they focused on capturing an audience outside of the ones their competitors were fighting over. The strategy has since brought them astounding levels of success, with the Wii striving to reach an untapped market of casual players and non-gamers, I feel as though this was a move directly inspired by how diverse and fundamentally different the GameCube's library was. On top of Satoru Iwata's mission to reach new people with Nintendo's games in the Wii and DS era, the GameCube library thought outside of the box a lot of the time, as demonstrated before with genre-defying games and innovative peripherals. While the software library was constrained by missteps made on the company's part, it was the beginning of an era in which Nintendo would continue to think differently than its competitors, and thanks to the Wii's controller setup and DS's dual screens, different ways of experiencing games came about in that generation too. Oh, and on top of the Wii's robust virtual console lineup of NES, SNES, and N64 games, the Wii's similar architecture to the GameCube meant that it was fully backwards compatible with GameCube games, controllers, peripherals, and memory cards. This means that with a much larger install base than before, players on the Wii could have all of the amazing experiences that they might have missed out on. There's no support for the broadband adapter or Game Boy player, but everything else was compatible, including games like Four Swords Adventures and Donkey Kong Jungle Beat. This arguably made the Wii Nintendo's best home console, but that's a discussion for another day. Obviously, the Wii wasn't going to stay on the market forever, and neither were the GameCube games of old. As the Wii U rolled around, GameCube games had long since left local GameStops, and the system didn't even support GameCube discs, despite having native compatibility for them built in. Now, in the Switch era, we have no official way to support these games, and Nintendo has yet to provide a solution. Games from other companies like Sega and Capcom have since been re-released or remade, and I understand that licensing could prevent games like Star Wars Rogue Squadron from being re-released, but Nintendo owns all of the first-party games I focused on in this video and they have done little to preserve their legacy content. 
Some games that rely on peripherals, like Four Swords Adventures, might be impractical and financially ill-advised to re-release, as that would mean creating a solution for a single, relatively niche game. But most of the other games I talked about today have no reason to be held back. They have an adapter for the controllers best suited to these games, and compromises can be made otherwise, like they did with Super Mario Sunshine. Oh, by the way, Super Mario Sunshine is available on the Switch, but the compilation it is playable on has since been delisted, as they felt it was best as a temporary celebration of Mario's anniversary. But I don't buy it. I say it was a sales tactic and they capitalized on nostalgia and fear of missing out over preserving their games. With Super Mario Sunshine's inclusion on the Switch, it's clear that they have an emulator in place to support these games, and a company willing to work on it. The Nintendo European Research and Development Division, or NERD for short, is currently hard at work on maintaining the NES and SNES emulators in place on Nintendo Switch Online, and presumably the N64 emulator too. They also developed a DS emulator for the Wii U Virtual Console, as well as the emulation on 3D All-Stars for Mario 64, Sunshine, and Galaxy. So, what's holding them back from bringing GameCube games to the Switch? I don't know. They're sitting on money, and I wish I had the answer as to why. People want to buy and support these games, but they have no viable way to do so directly. Other systems are also in a problematic position thanks to Nintendo's Switch Online service. It took a year and a half for NES games to finally come to the Switch, one more year for Super Nintendo games, and two more years for Nintendo 64. Along the way, Nintendo would drip-feed us games that wouldn't always be exciting, and games like Earthbound and Super Mario RPG remain unaccounted for. Flashback to the Wii. Super Mario 64 was available at launch, with new games being added every Wednesday. Or heck, how about Xbox? They have made strides in maintaining their Xbox and Xbox 360 emulation, so that many of their legacy titles can be played on modern hardware. On top of that, these games were purchasable on digital storefronts. But even then, all digital storefronts will eventually close, taking their libraries with them. This is an unavoidable reality in the digital era. Preservation efforts have fallen in the hands of emulator developers, and they've done a fantastic job of keeping history alive. Provided that you still have copies of your old games, playing them in emulators can offer improvements that were never possible on the hardware they were made for. From pixel-perfect upscaling in Super Nintendo games, to achieving 60fps in The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, to enabling widescreen support for a plethora of GameCube games that didn't have it. Emulation is a great way to play old games in the modern era. I am very grateful for the work these developers have done, and Dolphin, a GameCube and Wii emulator, is one of the best emulators around thanks to its suite of features, graphical options and improvements, and astronomically high compatibility. It's so monstrous in terms of features that I can't address everything they've accomplished in this video. I've seen plenty of people make the switch over to Dolphin in recent years for playing GameCube games, and I don't blame them. Super Smash Bros. Melee has received some incredible advancements, with Slippy implementing rollback netcode. I can't even fathom how much work that must have taken, but the end result is the most accessible Melee has been, well, ever. The only problem that remains is acquiring the games themselves. I am very fortunate to still have working copies of all my old games, but some people weren't as lucky or perhaps they never had the chance to experience them. On top of that, not everyone has the hardware or tech savviness required to run GameCube games in an emulator comfortably, leaving us with the only legal option available to us, buying them secondhand. So, let's check eBay for Paper Mario, why don't we? Paper Mario, The Thousand Year Door. 
Oh, oh well, uh, how about F0GX? Huh. Uh, Super Smash Bros. Melee? Okay, no, yeah, that's rough. This brings us full circle as we pile another inconvenience onto the unavoidable facts of the industry today. If you look for originality and innovation, you're likely to find it. Especially as Nintendo and independent developers continue to breathe life into a crowded industry of remakes, remasters, reboots, sequels, DLC packs, annualized franchises, and weird amalgamations of mechanics that worked across financially viable games. But games like Metroid Dread remind me of a time when nothing stood between you and the game, and that's why I decided with this video that I wanted to relive my childhood one more time. I wanted to go back to a time where nothing mattered more than having a great game to play. It'd be nice to have that simplicity back, but things have changed, and I have to accept that. That's why I'm going to talk about one more game. A game that preserves a sense of simplicity as you go about your life. It's something to look forward to, and something that you can become attached to. And it's unlike anything else on the GameCube. It's Animal Crossing. It's funny, actually, that a game could focus on simple pleasures like fishing, catching bugs, rearranging furniture, and talking to friends, and still be one of the most cathartic and profound video games of all time. The repetition of these day-by-day -day actions shouldn't translate into a compelling game, and yet they do. Perhaps it's the personalities of your neighbors that keep it fresh. Perhaps it's the feeling of excitement you get as you finally pay off your loan and can fill your house with more furniture than before. Or perhaps it's the feeling you get as you work towards filling the museum with donations. Whatever the reasons we have for coming back to our town, I feel it is the simplicity of these tasks, knowing that we will eventually feel fulfilled in completing them, that makes it all worth it. It is a direct reflection of our adult lives, presented in a cute and easily digestible manner without outside stresses or pressure to complete something in a specific time frame. You can just go at your own pace, figure things out on your own, and the villagers nearby will be happy to help you and be your friend. Most of the time. When revisiting so many games I loved from childhood, I was surprised to discover how much more Animal Crossing resonates with me as an adult. Firstly, it is everything I loved about growing up with the GameCube. Like the other titles I've discussed, it is wholly unique and groundbreaking in its own right. Second, it is one of the purest experiences I've ever had with a video game, which is a feeling I've missed dearly. But most importantly, it is a reflection of how I've come to appreciate my daily routine. We may not think much of going for a walk or grabbing a morning coffee, but it's those simple pleasures that define how we choose to live our lives, and I should relish having these simple privileges now while I can still enjoy them. While I miss the simplicity of feeling magic in every new game I played, I also cherish the simplicity of talking to you about these memories now, and doing something productive with my love of the GameCube. In essence, the purity and simplicity of an experience like the one I had with Metroid Dread, and many games of my past, will continue to come my way as long as I recognize and savor them before time takes hold of me once more. Many systems and experiences have passed me by, and who knows how long I'll have this. These videos. That's why I'll appreciate them, while I can still make them. I owe a lot to the GameCube. It shaped my interest in games, my passion for the medium, and a lot of its games eventually drove me to create this YouTube channel. So, thank you, little lunchbox. For everything.